Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of Essay Voices from the Field. Each week, we aim to bring you the true stories of student affairs. Over the course of this podcast, we hope to bring you both voices that feel like they are telling your own story and those that bring you stories you've never heard before. The podcast with expert guests and practical advice. Get ready to learn and become the best higher ed professional you can be. Welcome to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. I'm your host, Dr. Corliss Bennett, and I'm so happy to have you here. This podcast is sponsored by NASPA. Today, I'm really excited to have Brent Marsh out of the University of Mississippi. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Corliss. Thank you so much for the opportunity to visit with you today. Yes, absolutely. Before we jump into the rise of esports, I want to learn more about you and your journey through student affairs. And it's, it's, are you one of those, you know, 80% of people who just kind of fall into it? So give us a little information about you. Sure. And I, I'm uh, suspicious that that percentage isn't even higher, but uh, who knows? But it seems that's the story for many of us in the field that we obviously don't intend to uh, find ourselves in a career in student affairs. And somehow we find our way to that pathway later on in college. That was certainly my story. So I went to uh, Kansas State University. I grew up in Kansas and studied sociology as an undergraduate student and had plans to go to law school. Uh, But I had also along the way the opportunity, for which I'm very thankful, to serve as a resident assistant in uh, the housing and dining system there at the university. And really the last part of my senior year had a, a chance to step into really a different role, almost a graduate assistant type role as a senior for my second semester. And uh, that really opened my eyes to the, the career possibilities within student affairs. And I began to explore the graduate program there at the university and assistantships in housing. And those doors uh, thankfully opened. And I guess as the saying goes, I never look back. Res Light tends to brainwash you right into student affairs somehow. You become this campus leader and then you realize what student affairs is about, which is helping students. Um, so just like a lot of folks who are who have been RAs or who have done something within Res Life and in admissions, which was my background, you know, you learn so much about the campus as an admissions counselor and you're out there talking about the school over and over, over four or five times a day at night at college fairs. And then as a resident assistant, you're in the mix. You're a student, but you also have been trained on different things, suicide prevention, communication, active listening. And so that so these these type of positions kind of build up those leadership skills. And then you realize, oh, I could actually do this for a living. So I'm assuming that's probably how it came down with you. And you might be right. It might be 90 percent of us who might have who might have fallen into it. It's a very high percentage because it seems like anyone we ever talk to, you know, as we meet colleagues at conferences and things, that seems to be everyone's story. But whatever the percentage, you know, I know um, I'm thankful. I'm sure we all are that we get the chance to interact with students on our campuses every day and uh, make a difference um, in their lives and support the missions of our institutions. And so I uh, definitely for me, starting out in housing was just a wonderful opportunity and kind of set the stage then for the early part of my career. But really that experience has just built, uh, was like the foundation. I've been able to build upon that um, over the years. So my first position after leaving K-State with my master's was at a small private Uh, university in Texas working in housing. But, you know, again, in a small university, you're doing a variety of things. You're doing conduct, working with student organizations and and so on. And so really enjoyed that. And I was having a conversation just the other day with a grad student here who I think is going to have the I'm going to have the chance to work with her on a practicum next semester. And I was talking about, you know, never say never because you never know what what you're going to end up doing. I remember at one point 
as a graduate student saying, well, I would never work for a private housing management company. And I actually ended up doing that for a couple of years. And so I was managing some on-campus apartments at another university, but, you know, working for that corporation and not for the university. So that was an interesting experience. And I learned a lot through it and not something I wanted to continue, but um, it was a good couple of years to, um, you know, just have a new professional experience and certainly to learn uh, a different skill set. From there, I went on to Bowling Green State University where I uh, was able to complete my, my PhD program and uh, really enjoyed that experience a, a lot and I had a great, a great uh, couple of years there going full-time as a student. And from there, I ended up at another private university in Texas where I was dean of students and ended up serving at that institution for a decade and left there in 2014 as vice president for student life and dean of students. And then for the past five years, just before uh, arriving here at the University of Mississippi in August of 2019, I was working for five years at Rogers State University. And that's in Claremore, Oklahoma, near Tulsa. And I was serving as vice president for student affairs in that role. But happy to be here now serving at the University of Mississippi as uh, assistant vice chancellor for student affairs and dean of students. Well, tell us a little bit about the University of Mississippi, please. Well, we are located in Oxford, Mississippi. That's, you know, the, the main campus I think everybody is familiar with. Mo- a lot of folks are fam- even more familiar with the, the nickname Ole Miss, uh, even sometimes than the University of Mississippi. And I think people don't always realize that's they're one and the same, but uh, they are. Our undergraduate population last fall was just under 17,500. And then we had a little over 2,000 graduate students and about uh, 700 professional students. So we had a total enrollment last fall of just over 20,000 students. It is a, a predominantly white institution, but I am certainly thankful that we we have uh, also a nice amount of diversity, which certainly enriches our campus and just uh, creates some wonderful opportunities for student interaction and learning. As far as some of that diversity, our, our uh, African-American student population is um, around 2,500 students. And obviously, other demographic groups represent smaller numbers from that. Uh, we also do have another uh, big part of the university. But being a new person here, I haven't had a chance to really go explore yet or learn a lot about it. But the uh, University of Mississippi Medical Center is uh, located in uh, Jackson. And its total enrollment last year was uh, 2,840 students. So obviously, it's preparing a lot of students for professions in uh, the medical field. Wonderful. Okay. So, and, and when, once you said Ole Miss, I said, oh, that's Ole Miss. I've definitely, definitely follow, you know, college football. And then I get really involved when it's time for the, the March madness. And so I, I hear, but Ole Miss um, is pretty much in, in the ball game there for football, but okay. Interesting. And I think I actually went to the medical center in emergency a while ago. Well, this has been like more than 25, 30 years ago. I uh, was in a car accident with my cousin and went to the emergency room at um, uh, the medical center. So that's interesting that all that comes together. And oh my goodness. Yeah. And my parents are from Jackson, Mississippi, their high school sweetheart and they've been married 56 years. So we've got this whole connection thing going with Mississippi. So so now that we know about you and where you've been and um, and you've been really working that middle section of, of um, the United States, have you ever crossed the Mississippi to come over to the west side at all, ever? Well, I guess I spent more time, I think, west of the Mississippi between Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, as far as years of working in the field than I have you know, so far east of Mississippi, but of course I was in Ohio for 
couple of years and, and now in Mississippi. So we'll see how that ends up balancing out over time as, as my career progresses. But I have stayed in the middle, right? So I haven't been on the coasts yet. We'll see what yeah, happens. So yeah, you might have been west of the Mississippi, but I mean, two hours west is not is not considered west of the Mississippi. How much out? So we'll, we'll look forward to seeing you maybe in California one day. Who knows? Who knows? But let's get into the topic um, that you chose to speak about today on the podcast, which I thought was interesting, the rapid rise of esports. Now, I've heard of fantasy football and I hear people talking about oh, my team and you hear folks, you know, kind of arguing back and forth about whoever. And, and I said, well, who, who is this? What? I didn't know it was a game on last night. Oh, that's our fantasy football league. I'm like, oh, wow, really? <laughs> they were, I mean, passionate about talking about the game. And I just didn't realize that it was that serious. And I say that to say before anybody writes me, I did not grow up with brothers. It was just myself and my sister. So I didn't have any men influence besides my dad. And and my dad's influence was Bruce Lee movies. Um, so any action movie as a kid, drive-in, I'll let you know how old that goes, uh, <laughs> drive-in movies to go see all the action click Clint Eastwood and all the Bruce Lee, Enter the Dragon, Exit the you know Donkey, Here Comes the Elephant, whatever, all those shows. So I didn't really get into playing video games. So tell us a little bit about this rise of esports, please. Sure. Well, thanks for the opportunity again to uh, talk a little bit about it. I guess as I think about my own story and kind of the generation I grew up in, I mean, I feel, you know, that I really did get to grow up with sort of the advent of video games. I mean, you think about the Atari as kind of the first big household name that a lot of a lot of systems were on the market. A lot of households ended up owning uh, an Atari system in the early 80s. And then, of course, that gave way by the mid uh, mid to later 80s to the, the first Nintendo system. And then you know, from the 90s and onward, there was a sort of a proliferation of these console type systems. I guess I was a casual gamer growing up just as a kid playing video games. I enjoyed it as a pastime with my friends. And I really today, I don't consider I'm not a gamer at all. And I'll talk a little bit, I'm sure, during the conversation about kind of my experience with starting a program at Roger State University as I was wrapping up my last year there. But yeah, it's been really interesting. And I've been working on another project. It's not out yet or done yet, but just having a chance to write a little bit more and think a little bit more about sort of the history and the timeline of uh, video games. And really, the, the internet was so transformational because it opened up the advent of the internet. And then as folks began to uh, design ways to, to play games on PCs, with or against each other, sort of across different venues, the fact that you could log in and, and play with a game with somebody um, over your computer, it might be in a different room or a different town or a different state or even around the world, ultimately, uh, versus two people sitting there, you know, in front of a television screen, each holding a controller. Um, it just, it opened up a, a whole new array of opportunities for that interactive gaming. And over the years, as there have been more and more modalities for folks to play video games interactively. Really, it was a student movement on college campuses. You'd think about students forming, you know, tournaments or just playing in residence hall rooms or other places. But then as really societally, we saw the advent in the late 90s and certainly moving forward of these larger scale tournaments that would be held in big cities. That's when really this whole movement of esports took off. And then over time, of course, it began to take root on college and university campuses and students began holding esports tournaments on campuses. And then by about 2014, we saw the first quote unquote varsity esport program launched at Robert Morris University in 
Illinois. And uh, many universities have followed sort of in their footsteps ever since. That is just a crazy phenomenon. I mean, wow. I mean, to get to a point, <laughs> do you think it'll make the Olympics <laughs> the way it's growing? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure folks are speculating about it. It's certainly making a lot of inroads and it just become a large phenomenon. I mean, I can remember you know, being on a treadmill at a recreation center in, at my last uh, institution, you know, a few years ago, and I, I'm looking up, at, they have TVs on the wall that you can watch while you're cycling or on the treadmill. And, and I'm like, well, they're playing video games. What's going on? And I could tell there was, there was commentators. I just, to me, it, it caught me by surprise. I didn't realize at that point in my, in time, how, how far things had come that, uh, that and this is an ESPN broadcast that a network like ESPN would was carrying an esports competition, so uh, that that spoke to me that this is a big deal and it's um, it's really taking off and, and has taken off on a much broader level than I think what folks would ever have imagined. No, you're right. Once something hits on ESPN, that's it. That's like the the mother of all sports when it can wow. But ESPN broadcasting it that really puts a, some uh, flavor to it. I would say, for lack of better words, and some real. I guess okay. Now we can say. It's a real sport, you guys. And but then I always think back to how America and and students now on campus and even K-12 are not getting out the house to exercise themselves because they're always connected to a video game. I think what was the little one? The pocket one. Place PlayStation, the little The Game Boy was probably the first one, I think. That's it was it, like yes. a little pocket size. Well, not only did I not have brothers, but I don't have kids. So I, I that's why I sound ignorant with this. I just see students all the time, but it's just all you see is, you know, somebody's on this thing, or or when a mother is is um you're in the dentist office or you're in a medical office for your appointment and you just hand your child one of those, they'll sit there, they will not move, they will not pass go, they will not collect two hundred dollars. They are not, they're just bam. And the only thing you can do is when it's time for the appointment that, you know, pull the arm and they don't even look up. And I'm just like, okay, wow. Yes. I think all of us adults and young ones alike can sometimes get too engrossed in those kinds of devices that we don't notice the world around us. So there's a lot of different considerations and I'm sure we'll get more into that as we just, as we talk here, Corliss, but uh, there's certainly a lot of considerations and uh, factors that universities need to be looking at when thinking about starting an esports program or, you know, even evaluating one that's already in place. But certainly that that sedentary aspect of, you know, video gaming does need to be one of the high priorities because we need to certainly be mindful of students' health, well-being, fitness, and those kinds of things um, as we think about sponsoring a program on a campus like, like an esports program. So tell us how you actually set one up, you said, at Rogers State before you left in the process so that other uh, student affairs persons can look and think, okay, do I, is this something I want happening at my campus? Right. And it was really a very fortunate, I'd say, confluence of you know, a number of factors that worked in our favor there at RSU at that time. And so I believe it was, you know, early to mid-semester in the spring of 2018, our um, athletic director had come back from the NCAA convention, and there'd been quite a bit of conversation and just buzz about esports. I and, mean, you know, at this, you know, is the NCAA going to get involved in some formal way with esports and a lot of, a lot of talk about that. Um, but what he came back to, to our university and to our ca- cabinet conversation was, you know, this is really growing, y'all. It's taking off. 
maybe something we need to look into. And the university already had a game development program that had been around for quite a few years. And so there was already some natural connectivity with some academic programs. And we looked around our state at that time and no one else had really launched a program yet. And so our, our university leadership really saw it as a, an opportunity to um, kind of blaze a, tra- a new trail at the university and in the state of Oklahoma, at least at that time, and try to be the first one to um, stand up a program. So we, we made that commitment. There was a lot of buy-in from across the university. And, uh, but again, some things worked in our favor. There was actually, believe it or not, there was a mid-sized uh, lecture hall that holds around 100 people or so that wasn't being used and it just wasn't needed at that point in time by, by that academic department. And so they opened that space to us and allowed us to convert it into uh, the esports arena. So you already had an audience like theater style seating, which was perfect for the venue. So we had a venue, we had broad buy-in from across campus. Uh, we brought together a great team of sort of some stakeholders from across campus that could really help speak into what do we need, how we're going to get this done. So that included you know, our facility staff, IT staff, public relations, some student leaders who had already started a gaming club on campus, our admissions staff, and, and a few others that really helped us to think about what all do we need to put in place and how can we get this done by August of 2018. So our, our president really wanted us to have the, the facility open and all the gaming equipment, everything in place by the time students returned that fall. But it worked out and people um, came together worked hard. We were really proud and the students were, were really excited when they were able to come back to campus that August of 2018 and walk into this new space. And I think the thing that was the most rewarding for me was I, I began to see students as I would go into the to the esports arena and just check in with our coach, talk to the students. I would just see these faces in there really enjoying themselves. And they were students that I really hadn't seen anywhere else on campus. It's like that. Now they have their place. They have their niche. So that was really rewarding to be able to um, see this new community begin to form of those students on campus. And the thing is, you were able to link it to an academic unit. And I think that's the best way to start some things. That way you have fi- buy-in from the faculty as well as the student affairs side. Absolutely. And I, and I know we weren't you know, the first ones to think of this because I know other universities and other states had already been doing that too and creating and capitalizing on those synergies. But yeah, I mean, as we do with anything, and we even think about within the, you know, the work we do in NASPA and the conversations we have about you know, we even have a knowledge community that's dedicated to, you know, student affairs, partnering with academic affairs. And so you definitely want that buy-in and you need that buy-in. But I think more importantly, as we, we're going to continue to see esports growing just societally and globally, that it's becoming a, a bigger and bigger part of sort of the sports industry, that besides being a gamer yourself, because a lot of the students aren't gamers, but they want to get involved. And there's so many different ways that the industry is going to need, you know, a, a workforce that has a variety of skill sets to, to meet those demands. And so you think about all the different majors on campus that have nothing to do with video gaming, but they, it might be, you know, a, your communications program. And they're going to need people that have good communication skills to help uh, work for these organizations or event planning or, you know, your sports management programs. I think as we start thinking more and more about you know, esports participants, uh, competitors as athletes, you know, then there's going to be probably other new twists on things like sports psychology and how do you meet the needs of these type of athlete. So I think this, the sky is the limit really as far as a lot of the connectivity that 
is going to exist or could exist on a campus between academic programs and the needs of this emerging esports industry. Well, I mean, and that, and you're right, because I didn't even think about that when you start talking about communications or broadcast journalism, they usually run together. And again, I've never seen this, but are there commentators on the esports? There are, and that's again another skill set that's going to be needed. There, it's it's sort of like yeah, they call them shoutcasting, and that's one of the names for it. But it's it's similar. You need someone who understands the game and can be able to talk about what's happening with these teams, uh, with the individual players, and it's it's a big deal within you know the broadcast when these esports competitions are broadcast. So that's a big part of it to to be able to have the know the language, to be able to speak. Uh, quickly and accurately and in an excited way to be able to uh, help an audience follow along, a viewership, follow along with what's happening within the game environment. Now, see, that's amazing. When you're younger, you know, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, a doctor, a lawyer, a policeman, a, you know, football player, a lawyer, you know, a teacher, a baseball player. You hear all these little things back in the day for me, 80s. I grew up in the 80s, per se, as far as being in college in the 80s. Actually, I grew up in the 70s, but don't tell anybody. But being there in the early 80s when, as you mentioned, Atari, you know, I said that to a student and they looked at me and cracked up. And I was like, oh, you got your Atari going on. Just, I just wanted to see if they knew what they were talking about and what they were doing. And they did. And they laughed at me. But I remember Pong, those two vertical lines and you hit the ball between them. Do you remember that game? It was I do. real, super, super simple. You just hit the ball back and forth and back. And that was like the big thing. Of course, Pac-Man. I mean, that really. OK, so the whole thing about arcades, that's what I grew up on was right. you would go to the mall. And then there'd be this, you know, game room, or in this case, arcade, of all these different Tetris and all these different games. And so that was like the big thing growing up, uh, late, late 70s, for sure, 80s. And, you know, it was just like you couldn't take that home, so you had to go to it to be able to be involved. And then when Atari, you know, you had the home system, and then you had, like you said, the Atari, the Nintendo, the Game Boy, that's that little thing. Yeah, the Game Boy. And how popular it got, because now I don't have to go to the mall. I can now play at home with my homies, and we can go back and forth. And now it's even got to a point where, and I'm assuming that you can play people from just like... I guess just like online dating, where you can be talking to someone from Egypt to Paris, you know, to Mexico. I'm assuming that in this esports situation, you also play against folks from all over. Is am, am I reading that correctly? You are, and that's that's really one of the exciting things about collegiate esports is there are just some really amazing opportunities now, and the students are engaging in them all across the country. And there's a variety of leagues that exist, or there's a few different major organizations that that organize competitions. But yeah, the students can play, uh, you know, this un university A can compete against university B, and they don't leave their own campuses to compete head to head in these tournaments. They just play virtually. And so that's happening all the time. You know, every day all across the country, there's competitions going on. And I still follow the my previous institution on on Twitter. And, and so they will post updates about when their next competition is and encouraging the student body to come out and watch them. And I'm sure that's happening. I know it's happening at probably most of the institutions that are now have started programs of collegiate esports. But, you know, there's a lot of considerations and I'm sure time today will, will uh, escape us. We won't have time to talk about it all. But, you know, you mentioned that interaction with with your, you know, your friends or your counterparts that you're playing with or playing against. And that certainly is part of that. You know, the students, you know, we have 
typically you're playing on these pretty high-end gaming PCs that are very fast, and they're so proficient with the keyboard and the mouse. It's incredible to watch them work and navigate these games. Um, it really blows my mind personally. Um, but of course, they've also got the headset on with the boom mic, so they can interact with their teammates. But one, you know, one of the things we have to also be mindful of as we think about these programs is what kind of culture. Um, are we going to set? What are going to be the expectations? And hopefully helping the students to <clears throat> to be a part of setting those expectations, you know, for each other. Because, you know, like any game environment, you know, you think about on the football field or the basketball field, you know, participants um, can get a little chippy with each other sometimes and, you know, want to bump into the other participant or, or taunt them a little bit. And that same kind of thing can happen through the headset. And sometimes, you know, people maybe don't treat each other as well as they should, or in ways that we want them or think they, they should be doing. And that can lead to some abusive conduct. And so something that, you know, universities and programs really need to keep an eye on. So yes, just like there's internet bullying, I can see where this can take, like you said, to that kind of a level. I guess the good thing is that because they're not sitting in the same room, you won't actually get the physical violence that may happen, but you can definitely get bullied over the internet or over the esports lines. That's kind of scary. Yeah, it, it can happen between, yeah, like the in-game chats, you know, where there's like text chats or, you know, just through the headsets. And I mean, that's commonplace. I mean, I think a lot of people will trash talk and those kinds of things. But, you know, certainly we need to, again, just have those conversations with our student leaders and our, our student competitors about, you know, what, what are we going to expect of each other? And let's hold ourselves to sort of a high standard of the way we treat each other. Certainly, we don't, we're not going to tolerate discriminatory language or abusive conduct. And again, hope, hopefully inspiring the students to really raise that level of expectation for themselves and kind of calling each other out. You know, if someone says something that's out of line, that, that you know, we sort of teach those, those bystander intervention skills and tactics to try to intervene in situations and, and de-escalate them. And again, that's just one of a number of things. But the other great, you know, great part, it really does create a lot of camaraderie and community. So there's, I think with like with anything on our campuses, you know, fraternities, sororities, athletic teams, uh, student clubs and organizations, there's so much that's wonderful about it. So many great opportunities for students to learn and, you know, and to develop and to grow, as we've said over the years in student affairs, right? But uh, we also want to, uh, you know, be mindful in any of those environments of what are some of the um, the negative consequences that can occur? And really try to uh, talk with students about those and, and sort of set up the program in a way that can uh, hopefully mitigate um, some of that behavior. Well, and, and we do have to wrap up. But one of the things when you said about that, about the camaraderie, you know, for an introvert like myself, <laughs> um, that was a joke because, yeah, I'm nowhere. <laughs> I scored the highest on the Myers-Briggs back in freshman year of high school. So trust me, as, as highest extrovert of anybody who took the test on campus. Crazy. But anyway, this, is, <laughs> this gives the opportunity for an introverted person to be involved and maybe come out of their shell because now they're able to feel like they belong in a community. And that's a whole nother podcast that, that we can talk about. But I'm really excited that you were on the forefront of getting that started before you left uh, Rogers State. Um, and um, yeah, this is this is something I'm, I'm going to actually just start asking students, are they involved in any esports and and, and let them ask them, can I can I come by? Can I look at it? I want to see, you know, how it works in, in real life form. So um, but thank you very much. This is yet another option of having our students come together, 
another option of working with academic, academic affairs and student affairs working together. And I think that's the best way, especially if there's some kind of computer science major that deals with gaming, programming, production of all this different technology that's happening. And, and we're able to kind of pull in students from all ages to do things like this and be a part of something without, I hate to say without leaving their house or their res hall room, but it does give some, you know, a lot of people a sense of community, at least online. So thank you so much for your um, wonderful um, opportunity to talk with you about this. And it's really something. I mean, I, I just feel like I missed out on so much without having a brother uh, in my life. But nonetheless, so thank you for joining us today. If you found value in what you heard, please share the podcast with other student affairs practitioners. I look forward to having you join us next time as we share practical tips to aid you in your own student affairs journey. Until then, have a great day or evening. Thanks for listening to Student Affairs Voices from the Field. If you enjoyed your time with us, tell a friend. If there's a topic you want us to discuss, let us know. If you want to be a guest, tell us your story. Email us at savoices at naspa.org. You can find all our info at naspa.org slash savoices. See you next time. Thank you.